Good morning. You're turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. be reading a very interesting passage of scripture in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 7. The title of this message is Baptism, What We Believe, Part 1. It's a little bit, uh, it may be a little bit of a presumptuous title uh, because I say what we believe and uh, there may be a diversity of opinion and thought uh, of what we, in quotation marks, uh, believe about baptism. And uh, also part one is presumptuous too because I'm assuming that I'll have the opportunity to uh, give you at least part two uh, next week as the Lord wills. And I never like to presume. And you may notice that I frequently say as the Lord wills. And that's not just a magic catchphrase. That is the recognition and the realization that um, Today is all that I have been promised, and um, we don't know what's coming. But uh, as the Lord wills, part two will be next week. And uh, I just do not like to be presumptuous. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this passage. Hear the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And I want to just go ahead and apologize to you and apologize to the scripture because I'm not going to speak specifically about the experience that these believers went through in Ephesus and what Paul encountered there. But I since we are in Acts and since this is uh, in the flow of what we have been studying and in Sunday school so ably taught this morning by Tim Van Cleve, I thought this was an excellent launching place for us to talk a little bit about baptism. And I've been praying about this message and next week's message now for well over a month. So I, I pray that you will pray with me. And let's do that right now. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, your deep, deep love for us. And we say hallelujah. Uh, all we have is Jesus. And, we're, and that's all we need. Amen. And so we're so thankful. And as Ken said in his prayer, you have given us so much and, and we, we, just have, we just have so much surplus. We just give back to you just a little bit. And we are truly blessed. Lord, we are blessed that we have more than one translation of the scriptures and we can study your word with an ease and comfort that the apostle Paul didn't have. 
So we thank you. So many gifts. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time. Give me the words to say. Help me to say them in the way that you would have me say them. These things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. In October of 2012, about 20 Northside Baptist members who were interested in helping plant a new church attended an intensive three-day church plant training in Newport, Tennessee. Some of you were at that. This training was conducted by the Tennessee Baptist Convention. It was led by Dr. Lewis McMullen. And before the end of that year, 2012, this church had adopted an initial budget of $5,000 per month, and the church voted to adopt the name Blackman Baptist Church. Blackman Baptist Church. We had some very interesting conversations about the two church names that had been proposed. The two church names were Blackman Community Church or Blackman Baptist Church. Interesting, fascinating conversations and very informative and instructive of the heart of the people that God had called out to begin this work. And in the end, the Lord clearly led us to choose Blackman Baptist Church, and the vote wasn't really even close. And the name of our church told everybody that we're a church, we are called to the Blackman area, and we are Baptists. But why? Why is Baptist in our name? Why are we Baptists? Does it matter? Today, and as the Lord wills, next Sunday too, I will attempt to answer some of your questions. Please know right now, I will not get to all the questions. There are a lot of questions that baptism brings up, but we will try to answer some of the more salient questions, and we certainly want to answer any questions that you may have. I would imagine that you already have some questions about baptism. Uh, I gave you one just a minute ago. Why are we Baptists? Uh, another one, does it even matter? Uh, what does baptism mean? Do you, have to, do you have to be baptized to be saved? Do you have to be baptized to be a member of this church? What if I, were, what if I was baptized before I trusted Christ? Is baptism a part of salvation? What is meant by the term believer's baptism? What about infant baptism? Do I have to be baptized facing forward three times consecutively? That was a new one, J.J. I don't think I'd ever heard, and I may not have got that exactly right, but, but I, I'd never heard that. What about the mode of baptism? I mean, in other words, is, is sprinkling okay or pouring or immersion? Lots of questions about baptism. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, if you have specific questions about baptism and I don't answer them today, Please get those to me, and I will do my best to try to address those next week. Some of you may have been born Baptist, if you will. Some of you weren't. Regardless of whether you were born Baptist, uh, the Lord led you here today. And I trust that these messages will be a blessing to you. We all need to know what we believe and why we believe it. When I was just a fourth grader at Mitchell Nelson Elementary School here in Murfreesboro, I, I joined the 4-H club. And to this day, I, I, I don't remember what the 4-H 
stand for? Anybody know? Anybody know what the? Man, that, that'll preach. Uh, and they all start with H? They alliterate like that? Wow. So, forgive me, I don't remember the 4-H club, but today, I'd like everybody to join the 3-H club. And here's what these 3-H's stand for. Humility. Health. And history. And I would like to use those three H's, especially as I talk to you today about baptism. First, humility. I realize that greater preachers and pastors than I could ever dream of being have already taught on baptism. And I humbly recognize that I, what I'm about to preach and teach here may not line up with what they preach and what they teach. And I also recognize that greater theologians and thinkers uh, than I could ever hope to be have also studied and written on baptism and, and I also humbly recognize that what I'm telling you is offered to you in humility and I hope you understand that I'm offering this to you in humility. Rodney Edwards was teaching Sunday school about a month ago and he quoted Howard Baker and he said that when Howard Baker sat down at a table to negotiate or to work through an issue he always reminded himself when he entered that conversation that, you know, the other guy might be right. And I want you to know that I recognize that when I bring to you this message that I believe that the Lord has laid on my heart. This may be the first message on baptism uh, and being a Baptist that I've ever preached. I cannot recall ever preaching specifically on baptism, which is kind of funny because we're Baptists. Just this week... Uh, some dear friends reminded me that Brother Ken Polk, the pastor of the church that helped plant this church, often preached on baptism, preached on baptism on, in a regular basis. And of course, Brother Ken was the senior pastor at Northside Baptist Church, so instrumental in, in this church getting started and so instrumental in the spiritual development of our family. And, and we owe him so much. And so while I will do my best to approach this topic with great humility. I also firmly believe that the Lord has given me this message and so it is with some attempt at boldness, as much boldness as I can muster, I will offer these words of encouragement about baptism to you. So the first H is humility. The second H is health. When it comes to great questions of doctrine or practice of the church, the scriptures of course, should and must reign supreme. By the way, the supremacy of Scripture is a Baptist principle. Now, we're not the only Christians who hold to the supremacy of Scripture, but we do as Baptists, and we recognize the Scripture as the guiding force in our lives. One of the five great solas of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura. Sola means alone, that's Latin, sola scripture, scriptura, the scriptures alone. And when I talk about the Protestant Reformation, I'm talking about relatively late in the church's history, around 1500, the church was in such sad shape that it needed to be reformed. And one of the five great solas of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura. It's a theological doctrine 
held by us as Baptists and others as well, that the Christian scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. And we don't only just say sola scriptura here at Blackman Baptist Church, we practice it. And this is what I mean by that. I'm a member of an organization called C12. It's a Christian business organization. and They have a guiding principle, a maxim, that says priorities are what we do. Everything else is just talk. So when I say sola scriptura, I'm saying that the scriptures are preeminent and then we actually have to use the scriptures and we have to follow the scriptures no matter what they say. We can't preach the Ten Commandments and omit one because there are people in the audience who have a problem with that one commandment. We have to preach the entire whole council of scripture. If we don't bathe our Sunday school classes and our community groups and Awana and this worship service, if we don't bathe our worship in, in the scriptures, then scriptures are not first. And we're just taught. And as Christians, we need to be both walk and talk. Be both. And we haven't quite got deep into the scriptures this morning, but I promise I'll make up to that to you here in just a little while. And next week I'm going to make up as the Lord wills, I'm going to make up the sola scriptura with a vengeance. And I'll tell you what that will be, look like here in just a little bit. So the first H is humility. The second H is health. We need to know what the scriptures say and what they don't say in regards to baptism. It's critical to our health as believers that we understand baptism. It's important to the health of the body as a whole. So I promise to answer as many questions on baptism as I can and one of the questions that I mentioned earlier was does it even matter that we're Baptists? And I would say yes it does matter. We want robust healthy believers who know what they believe and know why they believe it. And this leads me to the third H. We talked about humility. We talked about health. We talked about history. We must look at what the church has gone through and has endured over almost the last 2,000 years to understand how we arrived here at this point in time and how we believe what we believe and how other Christians may believe things that are slightly different than what we believe. While we will always rely on scriptures, the scriptures for our primary guidance when it comes to matters of doctrine and faith and practice, it is very helpful to look at and see what other Christians have experienced over the years. Two thousand, almost 2,000 years of history now as a church. The church is the oldest living organism. It's, it's an organism more than it is an organization. It's the oldest living organism in existence. We were breathed into existence by Jesus through the Holy Spirit almost 2,000 years ago. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is our founder. And the church has grown from a small group of 12 disciples to 70 disciples to 5,000 believers on Pentecost to be the largest religious affiliation in the world. Over 2 billion people in the world today identify, openly identify themselves as Christian. So with such a great history of almost 2,000 years, 
almost 2,000 years, and with a great population of over 2 billion, it makes sense to see what other Christians teach and believe and have practiced over the last 2,000 years. Now, much of the information that I'm about to share with you I got from a great book by Irwin, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who is the former senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. And the book is called The Doctrines That Divide. I highly recommend this book. And I'm actually taking a lot of the history that I'm going to present to you straight from that book, chapter 7, uh, and the, the uh, chapter of that, um, uh, that chapter is entitled, Why Can't We Agree on Baptism? For the purpose of these messages, I, I would like to divide the history of the church into five periods of time and look very briefly at how the church practiced baptism during these time periods. So here are the five periods of time in church history. First, you have the early church. And when we read through Acts, that's first-generation church. So the book of Acts, the study that we have uh, been having in Sunday school and we're extending now into our worship time, that's the early church. These are Peter, Paul, James, Philip, Stephen. When you read the book of Acts, you are reading the first generation of the church. So we'll look at that period. The second period of time is the time that immediately follows what happens in Acts, and that's the time of the church fathers, where they weren't apostles, but they knew the apostles. And we'll look at what they taught about baptism and what they practiced about baptism. I would say that they're the second generation of the church. Then we'll look at the third, fourth, and fifth generations, uh, all the way into the time of Constantine, and this is where infant baptism first comes onto the scene, as I understand it, and began to be practiced. That's the third period of time. We'll just call that the rise of infant baptism. The fourth period of time is the church from that time when infant baptism began to be practiced all the way up into the Protestant Reformation. And then the fifth period of time, the Protestant Reformation until now. We'll put that where we are now, we'll put ourselves in that fifth period of time. So let's talk about the early church. Dr. Lutzer, whose book I mentioned a minute ago, tells us, and, and what he does is he, he goes ahead and quotes um, a book written by Jeffrey Bromley, who is probably the most able def defendant, um, who wrote the most able defense of infant baptism, and his book is called Children of Promise. And this is what Dr. Bromley says. He actually begins the book with this. The chief difficulty in relation to the New Testament is that it does not give us the plain and direct evidence for or against infant baptism, which most people desire and which many people think they find in it. And so next week, we're going to specifically look at that first time period the time period of the church, the first generation Acts. And my plan is to go through a whirlwind tour of Acts and we'll talk about every single passage in the book of Acts that mentions baptism and we'll talk about its implication. We'll also talk about some passages of scripture that don't mention baptism and why they're important to our discussion here. Acts is a great place to start the study of the beginning of the church and how the church practiced baptism. But don't stop there. You look into the epistles too, which are New Sunday School 
uh, quarterly. We're moving into the epistles and we'll uh, continue the study there as well. I would say this though, if you look at Acts and see how the church practiced baptism, there is no record of infants being baptized, not specifically mentioned. There, there is talk in Acts chapter 16 of a household being baptized. And then we also have the story of uh, Lydia as well. But in both of those situations, we can't tell if there were infants involved there or not. So if you, are, if you believe in infant baptism, you say, well, they could have been. And if you don't believe in infant baptism, you say, well, it's not mentioned that they were. So we look at the first generation, but now let's look at the second time period, the time of the church fathers. Now these are the church leaders who knew the apostles. What about this second generation of believers? These believers knew the apostles. They lived in the second century. Once again, I quote Dr. Lutzer. He tells us that Arrhenius, who knew Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, wrote a five-volume treatise on Christian theology. And in that five-volume treatise, he does not mention infant baptism at all. The epistle of Barnabas was written around, well, we don't know exactly when the epistle of Barnabas was written, but it's somewhere between the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the second, or actually technically the third destruction of the temple in 132 AD. And in his epistle, there's no mention of infant baptism. The Didash, or the Didach, um, is, uh, Cody and I were talking about this with Ken this morning, was was written about 100 AD, and it's the first how-to manual of how to practice Christian worship. It's written about 100 AD, and it was a manual for how to administer communion, how to administer baptism, and, and it specifically talks about the method of baptism. And it says, running water is preferred. Living water, like in a river or in a stream. But if you don't have running water, then a baptistry, a baptistry is okay. Still water is okay. Or if you're in a situation where you don't even have enough water for a baptistry, then it's okay if water is poured on your head. Maybe you're in the desert. Maybe water is uh, not available. And the water needs to be poured on the head three times uh, according to the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at this early manual of how to do Christian uh, worship and practice, which was written about 100 AD in the second generation of the church, in that second time period that we're talking about, the time period that follows what happened in Acts, we see that there's no mention of infant baptism. We first begin to see infant baptism being mentioned well, actually, the first mention that we know of is about 200 years, 200 years A.D. And it was mentioned by Tertullian. Tertullian was a famous preacher uh, in North Africa. And he was very much opposed to the practice, and he spoke forcefully against it. He thought that baptism should be reserved for those who were old enough to believe in Christ and understand what they were doing. The second reference we have to infant baptism is another great um, leader of the church, Origen, who ministered in Alexandria. And I say possibly because his writings indicate 
that he believed that infant baptism took away the pollution of sins from the infant. But I say possibly because we know that his works were somewhat edited later, and we're not sure if he was saying that or if someone edited that later to draw that into compliance with church teaching at the time. But by the time we get to 250 AD, Cyprian, who was another great leader of the church, he firmly believed that infants should be baptized. He, as a matter of fact, he took that question to a, um, a um, council of bishops. There were 66 bishops that gathered together and he put the question to them. And this is, you might think the question would be, is infant baptism okay? Or should we practice infant baptism? But that's not the question that he put to them. He, this is the question he put to them. Should we wait until the eighth day to baptize an infant? It was already assumed by 250 AD that infants will be baptized and they should be, well, the, the 66 bishops brought back the answer and said, uh, no, don't wait. Do it immediately to remove the pollution of sin. If you don't do it immediately, you are risking the soul of the child. He will be exposed to the risk of eternal perdition. So we see that in this third uh, time period, now that the practice of infant baptism uh, had become so commonplace that the question was not, should we do it? The question was, should we do it immediately upon birth or should we wait to the eighth day so that it would be more in line with circumcision, which was practiced on the eighth day uh, in the Jewish faith? By the way, Cyprian also taught that infants should be given communion too. And at this point in time, in the church, people believed that salvation was administered through these two ordinances of baptism and communion. And they wanted their children to go to heaven. And infant mortality was so high at this point in time. And you also had orphan situations where Christians under the great persecutions, mothers and fathers were being executed for being Christians and their children would be left to fend for themselves. Sometimes they're infants, and so there was a great concern on the part of these parents that we want our children to be in the faith. We want our children covered. And of course, also that great church father, Augustine, or if you're from Florida, Augustine, uh, also spoke in favor of both infant baptism and infant uh, communion. Did that just go right past you? Okay. I mispronounced his name for the first 50 years of my life. It was only when I... I became acquainted with more spiritually robust and theologically informed people that I realized I have not been saying his name right. It's Augustine. Then I want to talk about the fourth uh, time period, the church until the Reformation, Constantine to Luther. When Constantine became the Roman emperor and he won a stunning military victory after seeing a cross in the sky in a dream and he, he thought that in the dream, the Lord was telling him, under this sign, go forth and conquer. Well, we, he won that battle, and then Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And I want to read this quote to you here. Now, this is directly from the book, because you've you got to follow this. This is so important to understanding how the church got to the point where we are today. What does all of this have to do with baptism? With Constantine in power, Christianity was no longer a sect within the empire, 
but was to become synonymous with the empire. One could now be a Christian simply by being born in the empire, not necessarily by having personal faith in Christ. Infant baptism became the link by which the church and the state were united. Although infant baptism began for theological reasons. In other words, Christians baptized infants because they thought that they had ample evidence in the scriptures to practice this. And they could see the theological reasons of why it could be justified. Although infant baptism began for theological reasons, namely the belief that the ritual washed away the pollution of sins, it now became, became a political asset. Every child who was christened or baptized as an infant was both a Christian and a member of the Roman Empire. Since infants could become citizens of the empire without any decision on their part, so too could they become a Christian. Infant baptism thus became an almost universal practice in just a matter of decades. Thank you for letting me read that, that quote. Infant baptism was seen as critical in keeping the state, which was Christian now, and the church together. In one sense, it was the glue that kept society Christian. Christians who taught believers baptism, which is what we teach here, that you make your profession of faith in Christ and then you're baptized as a believer. Christians who taught believers baptism uh, were known as Anabaptists. And that uh, from the Latin Anna means to be baptized again. So you see, if you were born into a Christian society and you were christened or baptized as an infant, and then you later came to a different understanding that, no, I need to personally trust Jesus Christ, and now I need to be baptized to show the world that I've done that. People say, oh, you're one of those people who believe you need to be baptized again. So the Anabaptists didn't really appreciate the term Anabaptist. They didn't like that. Um, but uh, Christians who practice believers' baptism um, or Anabaptists were seen as a threat to both the church and the state and many were killed for this belief. Many Anabaptists were executed because they held to this belief of believers baptism. Which brings us to the fifth time period, the Protestant Reformation. The reformers by and large stayed with the practice of infant baptism. They went from a position of uh, being a part of what we now would call the Catholic Church to forming their own churches in the Protestant Reformation, the Lutheran Church, the Presbyterian Church came out of, out of uh, the Reformation. And by and large, they kept with the practice of infant baptism, but they had some concerns. And you can see how they wrestled with it uh, in their writings. They had fears, they had motivations, they had concerns. I think about Zwingli, he was the great uh, Swiss reformer. Ron and I visited uh, Zwingli's church in Zurich. Beautiful church. And uh, he was an important uh, reformer. Initially he taught that infant baptism was wrong. But eventually he changed his position and came around to support the state's position. And many Anabaptists were uh, executed and they died saying that Zwingli had betrayed them. 
As a matter of fact, we went to Zwingli's church in Zurich, and it's a beautiful church, just a few hundred yards away from his church. The Lamont River runs through the middle of town, and it was in that river that prominent Anabaptists were forcefully baptized in the river until they died. They said, oh, you want to be baptized again? We're going to help you with that. And so the church executed, uh, the, the church state executed heretics who taught a different doctrine. Luther wrestled with this issue. He also came down on the same side of the issue as what we would now call the Catholic Church. Calvin taught that. Better. Now Calvin uh, saw the problem with, uh, there's a real concern in infant baptism um, what if we baptize an infant and then later on in their life they don't show any evidence of the fruit, fruits of the Spirit? In other words, what if they're not saved? Calvin saw that and said, he actually taught that baptism does not bring salvation to an infant, but that they are like the seeds of repentance by the working of the Spirit. And now we're going to move about 300 years to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a Baptist preacher, the Prince of Preachers. And of course, he's preaching in England where the Church of England is dominant. And the Church of England also held to the practice of infant baptism. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon dared to speak against it. And this is what um, his concern was that the Church of England taught that through infant baptism, the infant is made a member of Christ, a child of God and an inheritor of, kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. And a massive controversy erupted over his preaching this. He really thought it was the end of his, it was going to be the end of his um, ministry. But the exact opposite happened. The Lord lit a fire uh, under him and through his preaching and in specific regard to this particular issue. And God took that controversy to bring many, many people uh, to himself. Now why all this history? Brother Kevin, why are you, why did you take us through those five times in the church's history? I present this very shortened version, and if you're a church historian, you know that I was consolidating, massively consolidating, trying to get this into a workable, understandable format. I present this to you so that you will have some context and understanding that when you talk to a Presbyterian, there are good reasons why infants are, are baptized in the Christian church. And we, or when you talk to a Methodist, you can understand why they would say, well, it's okay if you want to be sprinkled or if you want to be poured or if you want to be immersed. I want you to understand the context. We were talking in elders meeting this morning of a lot of times what we think is simple. It's simple simply because we haven't taking the time to talk to somebody who had a different idea about it. And we get into our own echo chambers. And the reality is the church is rich and is multifaceted. And there are believers from all different walks of life and different cultures. And they bring different things to the table. And there are reasons why they believe what they believe. And there are reasons why they practice what they practice. And we need to respect them. We don't always have to agree, but we need to respect them. You need some context on why believers believe what they believe. But I want you to know why we teach what we teach here. And so if you will forgive me, I will postpone the rest of this message till next week where we will take, as the Lord wills, a whirlwind tour through the book of Acts 
and we will look briefly at every passage that even mentions baptism and some that don't and it's important why they don't. But until then I want to leave you with two questions. One question is about Jesus. One question is about Paul. So here are the two questions. First question. Did Jesus ever baptize anybody? No, he didn't. That's the correct answer, but thank you, brother. <laughs> Did Jesus ever? There's no record that Jesus ever baptized anybody. And that's interesting. That's instructive, I think. The second question is, did Paul ever baptize anybody? And I'll go ahead and give you the answer to that. And the answer to that is yes. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we will just, for about three minutes, we're going to talk about this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. It's a great passage to start us off on our Sunday school lesson too as we talk about the epistles to the churches and the divisions that were in the churches. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul baptized for you? Was Paul cru uh, crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this passage makes me ask three questions. If we, we see now that Paul did baptize people. How do you think he felt about baptizing people? Based on that scripture. Does it sound like baptism is required for salvation? According to that passage. And did you notice how Paul separates the gospel. From baptism. In this passage. Why did he do that? Lord willing the answers to these questions and more. Will be here for you next Sunday.